Welcome to all the Star Trek and sci-fi fans out there. Hello everyone, this is Rico, and of course this is Treks in Sci-Fi, show number 70 for August 27th, 2006. It's another Sunday morning, and it's another podcast, so stand by, here we go. This week on Treks in Sci-Fi, Star Trek The Motion Picture, starring William Shatner as Admiral James T. Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock, DeForest Kelly as Dr. Bones McCoy, James Doohan as Commander Scotty, George Takei as Lieutenant Sulu, Majel Barrett as Dr. Chapel, Walter Koenig as Lieutenant Chekhov, Michelle Nichols as Lieutenant Commander Uhura, Persis Kambata as Lieutenant Ailea, Stephen Collins as Captain Commander Will Decker, Grace Lee Whitney as CPO Janice Rand, Mark Leonard as the Klingon Captain. Directed by Robert Wise. Well, hey there, everybody. This is Rico, and I hope you enjoyed that little different kind of introduction to the show. This is the Treks and Sci-Fi Podcast, and on this week, as it's pretty easy to tell by now, I'm going to look at the first Star Trek movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture. We'll get to that shortly, and first, though, I want to go over some, as I usually do, general discussion announcements. want to, of course, thank everyone for downloading the podcast, and for those first listening welcome to the show and for those who've listened for quite a while i welcome all of you back it's been uh, quite a busy week for me this uh this past week i took my wife and i took my oldest son up to michigan state university he is starting uh college this this fall actually he'll be starting tomorrow first day of classes so uh shout out to him he's uh he's actually been listening to the podcast he's not a uh, as big a sci-fi fan of course as i am and who is really i mean come on but uh, he has been actually listening to the show occasionally and enjoying, I think, hearing his good old dad talk about uh, Trek stuff and other things. So, hello, Steve at MSU, if you're listening. And um, let's see what else. Oh, work has been rather busy, too. So, as I say many times, many weekends, it's always good to kick back and talk to uh, everyone out there about my favorite thing, which is sci-fi, Star Trek, and all of those things. It was... Uh, it was a very, very busy week, and it's good to have a little time to relax and podcast. Let's go over some uh, just some general announcements, and I'll get to some sci-fi news of things that have been happening this past week or so. Uh, the first big announcement that I want to get out of the way is I have started t-shirt pre-orders for the podcast. This is uh, a design I've had up on the website a couple of times. I've talked about it the last few weeks, but I finally... I've got a PayPal account set up all for the, this purpose. If you go to the main website, uh, treksf.com or just treksinsci-fi.com, both of them will get you there. Right now there's a post there about the T-shirt t- uh, pre-orders. There's also going to be a permanent kind of link on the side in the main menu. Just click on that T-shirt pre-orders, and you can order your uh, very own Treks in Sci-Fi podcast T-shirt, which I'm sure you'll love wearing around the house and out, out and about uh, 
it uh, it ended up being uh, it's going to cost twenty five dollars. It's going to include shipping. And the what I'm going to do for the next couple of weeks is I'm going to take pre orders. Please make sure if you pre order a shirt that you include the size that you want. And then I will place the order, the final bulk order. And the more we get in, uh, the easier this will be for me. And I'm going to order a few extra, but to basically guarantee that you'll get a shirt and in the size that you'd like, please, in the next two to three weeks while I'm doing the pre-orders, please go ahead and do a pre-order because I'm not going to order a lot of extra. The idea here is that I don't want to have you know boxes of T-shirts sitting around my basement uh, you know, for, for the next few months. I want to just kind of get what everybody wants, do a one-shot order, and then send them out. So that that's the plan, at least at this point. If you don't do PayPal, I am. I did make a, a comments on the order page that you can send me an email, and I will send you my home address. You can send me a check if you'd like, or a money order, uh, and we can we can take care of things that way. But it's definitely a lot easier if you can do PayPal and send me the funds through that. So that's uh, that's a story on the T-shirt orders, and I, I really uh, I think the design's going to be pretty cool, and I think uh, those that enjoy the podcast I, i'd really pre- appreciate uh, your order uh the bottom line of all this gang is is i'm really just doing these at cost this is not uh, a money-making scheme in any in any way for me it's just a way to get you know shirts out there to the people that listen to the show and kind of promote things a bit i was actually in uh, a target the other day wearing my jawbone radio podcast t-shirt and the cashier even commented uh when they saw the shirt on and said, "Oh, Jawbone, what's that? Is that a, is that a show on the radio?" And I and I had to tell them, "No, that's a it's a it's a show. It's a podcast on on the internet." And they and they just kind of go, "Oh, hmm, interesting." So it's uh, you know it's a little bit of advertising, and it's it certainly uh, doesn't hurt uh, to go out there and show uh, show the world uh, what you listen to and what's you, what you like. So anyway, that's uh, that's all I've got to say on t-shirts. And I hope you guys, uh, those that listen to the show, pre-order. On the sci-fi news front, uh, the, probably the biggest story this past week was the announcement uh, from the Sci-Fi Channel that, that they are canceling Stargate SG-1. Yeah, after the, they're in their tenth season right now, and after this year, that will be that uh, it will be gone. Which uh, you know, it's sort of a good and bad news situation. Uh, one, one of the the good part is they're keeping Stargate Atlantis, which is still a great show, and I, I really enjoy that one. But of course, they you know they've had a good long run with with Stargate SG One. I'm going to miss it, of course. I, I think they've, I really think they keep reinventing themselves. I think the new actors, I think the new storylines. I think they're they've been they've done a very good job at not sort of just you know fading away as some shows do after a few years. They get the good storylines and ideas out of the way, and then they kind of dwindle off to some degree. But I, I think Stargate's been pretty consistently good across the 10 years that they've been on the air. Yeah, they've got their ups and down type shows, and, and every every series has that. But I think in, in general, for a show that's been on 10 years, the level of quality has, has really shined and, and been coming through throughout that, that run. I'm really going to miss the show, and I you know I'm kind of hoping that they end up doing a, a movie, either one for made-for-TV who knows? Maybe internet distribution, or or perhaps uh, the big screen. You know, uh, another Stargate movie on the big screen with with people from maybe SG One, maybe slip in some people from Atlantis, and that would be that would be a great thing to see. So we'll have to see how things go, but I, it will be uh, it will be definitely a missed show. The the good also with this though they've they've announced it in time. I think that they can hopefully wrap up a lot of the characters and current storylines, and they won't just sort of leave it hanging like 
unfortunately some shows have done in the past, uh, namely Farscape when it first left the Sci-Fi Channel. It was really left in a in a hanging a cliffhanger state, and they they did make make good on it though eventually and created the Peacekeeper War four hour miniseries, which really wrapped up that show well. So so anyway, that is the the news about Stargate SG One. The other bit of news that is still, it's a kind of a rumor, I guess, at this point still. There are people on the internet that are saying it's confirmed, but I'm still not really believing it, is this whole rumor of Matt Damon playing the role of a young Captain Kirk in the next Star Trek movie, which would be the 11th Star Trek movie. Uh, This movie is still slated to not come out until 2008. There's two years away at this point i really doubt they've had anyone any actors signed i suppose there's they've probably talked to them and there may be some interest level there but i don't think anything's official i have my mixed feelings about this situation Uh, the biggest thing i don't understand about it all is i would think that doing a young kirk spock story where you can basically sort of restart this at in at a point in time where you don't need to use any of the the classic actors, Shatner, Picard, uh, Patrick Stewart, and so forth, I would think they would want to go with some unknowns for for a couple of reasons. One, playing those roles is is going to be a tricky thing to begin with. Also, they can save a lot of money this way if they go with unknown uh, actors they won't have to pay nearly as much as somebody like a Matt Damon. Um, I think Matt Damon's a good actor. I think he could do a good job in the role, but I see it being kind of unnecessary. I don't really understand the idea unless they want a name in the role again, which kind of, to me, defeats the purpose of going back and doing a young Kirk Spock story. So we'll have to see how this transpires and, and moves on in the next uh, you know several months or, or whatever. But I, I still think this is not necessarily the best way to go with it. I, I don't quite understand it. Maybe there are things I'm missing with their with their thinking on this i i don't know but uh, we'll see how that goes so matt damon continues to be the the rumor uh, of choice for the role of captain kirk for the next star trek movie but we'll see how that all pans out and i think that's going to wrap it up for for mania for the main topics news information announcements that i wanted to get to i i want to kind of get going into the the main topic here shortly but i do have a uh an audio comment that I want to play from Kenny in California, who's a, a, a longtime regular contributor to the show. Kenny sent some comments in on last week's Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, Buffy and Angel podcast that I did. So I wanted to play those comments now, and then after that we'll we'll get into uh, a couple other email comments and then into the main topic of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So here's Kenny's comments on last week's uh, Buffy show and his uh, thoughts on those Buffy Angel uh, TV series. Hey Rico, it's Kenny from California. Long time no talk to. Yeah, I've been busy with work and uh, finally have some free time and I've been trying to catch up on your podcast. I just listened to your Buffy and Angel podcast and I just wanted to give you a big thank you for doing a podcast on these two great TV series. I've been a fan since the very beginning. I do remember watching Buffy in the theater and you know, it's kind of cheesy and corny, but, but it was enjoyable, it's entertaining. And then I heard they were doing a TV series, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll give it a chance and, and see, because you know, I do like that, that type of genre, the vampire genre. And after watching the first episode, I just was taken back. I, you know, I had never seen anything like that before on TV. It was just so much fun. It was, it was funny, yet scary, and very witty, and it just was so enjoyable. And then the second episode, and the third episode, and it just kept getting better and better. 
And by the time seven seasons went by, five years on WB and two years on UPN, those characters had developed so much. They went from adolescent teenagers to very sophisticated young adults. Um, you know, and they had everyday problems like everybody else. They had love lives. They had heartbreak. They had school. And they had, you know, besides the fact that they had to fight demons and vampires all the time. That's what I think I liked about the series most was just it was it felt very real, but with a magical element to it. You know, and the story writing was unbelievable. Where these characters went blows my mind at the depths of which they went. You know, Willow especially took a, a very bizarre journey, and so did Buffy. I mean, Buffy was huge. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but Buffy and Willow, both of their journeys, you know, very deep and dark and, and, and survived, and, and they grew from it, and they learned, and, you know, you had Faith, who was just unbelievable. It just... I can go on and on about every single character. They were all great. So much fun to watch every week. And I was very disappointed when it when it went off. But it definitely went off with a bang. And, and it was an enjoyable series. But listening to your podcast made me so excited that I had to start watching episodes again. I actually already had purchased the Once More With Feelings CD. And I popped that in and listened to that from beginning to end. Um, just so much fun. And with Angel, I watch Angel at the very beginning when it spun off I was excited to see uh, a new Buffy you know Buffy verse but Angel was a lot more darker I don't think it ever became as enjoyable as, as Buffy but it was still fun to watch and, and definitely over the years as the characters developed and they added more you know Cordelia definitely went through a lot of changes uh, they added Fred and Wesley and Gunn and, and Connor and, and the Wolfman Hart and all those you know those characters really got developed and I truly think this this series was cut short it only ran five years and I don't think it it got the just ending that it deserved um, I would always hope they would do a movie to kind of wrap up because you know not giving any spoilers but you know I didn't I didn't particularly like the ending of Angel but you know what are you gonna do but definitely those two series are top 10 of my list and I'm so grateful that you did a podcast on them because they are well-deserving, and if you like that type of vampire drama, then definitely uh, check out those two series. I'll talk to you later, Rico. Thanks. Well, thanks very much, Kenny, for that great uh, take on uh, Buffy and Angel. And it sounds like you really enjoyed those shows as much as I did. They were, uh, they were, of course, just just really great. And you, the big thing that you brought up that I tried to say last week also was just the whole the the character arcs. Uh, you know, there were great plots and great stories with those shows, but. One of the things I really appreciated with both Buffy and Angel was how much the characters changed and evolved over the years. So thanks a lot for your comments, Kenny. I've got uh, one more uh, voice ca- email, uh, voicemail, let me say that correctly, voicemail from a fan. Uh, this is from Dennis. Uh, he does a podcast also. Dennis does something called, uh, it's a, called Starstruck, the Houston Astros podcast. So if you're a baseball fan, that's at Starstruck podcast all one word.com and he sent me a little voicemail that i'm going to play for you now hey rick this is dennis from starstruck the houston astros podcast i'm down here in dallas texas and i really enjoy listening treks in sci-fi i've enjoyed especially going through some of the episodes like you've been doing lately i'm not much of a next generation or ds9 watcher so it's been cool checking out some of those and you've given me a chance to fill up my netflix queue with stuff that i have not yet seen being an original series fan it's also been really cool walking through those with you and hearing your commentary you know star trek is 
that vision of the future that is hopeful and that uh, exploration and selfless means of, of discovery are actually the focus in that culture. And it's something that I think we all appreciate as Star Trek fans. And I like that you highlight that in your episodes. I also especially appreciate you mentioning Wild Wild West, such a cool series that so many people wouldn't give a shake. Thanks for mentioning it because it's a lot of fun. It's certainly one of my favorites. And heck, the thing was made way before I was born, but it's still a lot of fun TV. Anyway, thanks for your hard work. Of course, I do Starstruck, and uh, the beginning of my show, I ask podcasters, listeners, fans to uh, bat lead off. Uh, it gives them a chance to say that uh, where they're from or uh, what their show is, and that they are starstruck. Uh, if you'd like, you can always call up and or send an MP3 file over to me. I'd love to put you on the show and help promote Treks in Sci-Fi. Again, thanks for your hard work, and here's listening for some of the future. Thanks very much for those nice comments, Dennis. Yeah, that uh, anyone who's a Houston Astros fan, check them out, starstruckpodcast.com. I used to uh, follow the Detroit Tigers quite a bit in baseball in general. I was probably actually growing up my favorite of all the sports. I went to a lot of uh, baseball games growing up. I've kind of faded away from it a bit in recent years. I don't know. I think professional uh, professional sports in general it's probably more of a time element too. I just got so involved in other things, sci-fi and, and you know, marriage, kids, job, house. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like there's enough time to do everything that I'd like anymore. But thanks very much for your comments, Dennis, and I really appreciate that. Okay, so what we're going to do, I did get several other emails this week. I am not going to get a chance to kind of comment on those directly right now. I did email most people back, I think, that sent me an email. But I am gonna. I am planning right now to do a Wednesday uh, middle of the week show, so I will cover most of those this coming Wednesday. So look for that coming up uh, later this week. But I do want to get into right now the main topic: Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Now, of course, as everyone knows, Star Trek went off the air back in 1969 after only three seasons, with you know kind of middle of the road ratings and, and near the end really poor ratings. And everyone thought, hey, that's that. It's never going to come back. Well, about in the mid-1970s, when I really started getting into the show and reruns and, and, and watching uh, you know, Kirk and Spock and everyone each week, uh, multiple times during the week, it was usually showing five days a week, maybe even every day of the week, a, a sort of a resurgence took place through all the reruns and some of the early Star Trek conventions uh, started to happen. And during this time, Gene Roddenberry had the idea and was approached to actually create a new Star Trek TV series, and they they moved along on this uh, this idea quite a ways. They created scripts. They they hired new actors to play some some of the roles. There was going to uh, Leonard Nimoy at that time was not interested in being Spock again, so they looked for a new character uh, that was going to play a new young Vulcan science officer on the show. And lots of sets were created. Like I said, scripts were created. And this, uh, but this series, you know, known sort of as Star Trek, um, I think it was called Star Trek uh, Phase 2 is is sort of the working title they had at that point, if I'm remembering correctly. I didn't do a lot of background on looking all this. I've read about it a lot, but since we're mainly going to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture, I didn't get into learning and looking up all the Star Trek Phase 2 info. But the main reason I'm bringing this up is, what happened because of this situation at this time was the movie, or, or during this, this 
time frame, the movie Star Wars came out, which was started in around 1976. Star Wars premiered in 1977. Well, when Star Wars hit and was such just, you know, an incredible uh, movie-going experience and effect on the industry, I mean, this movie played for months, made tons of money for, for 20th Century Fox and George Lucas and so forth. Well, Paramount, you know, looking at that and going, hmm, you know what? Why are we making a, a Star Trek TV series? Why don't we make a movie? Why don't we make a movie that can make a ton of money like Star Wars did? Hey, you know, makes sense. Uh, so what they did was basically scrub the idea of doing a TV series and went uh, full force into making Star Trek the motion picture. They gathered up all the all the cast, uh, got everyone signed up again, hired Robert Wise to direct. And the story that they used, and this is referencing back on the Phase 2 thing, the storyline they decided to use was a, a Gene Roddenberry storyline that was created for the this Phase 2 series. It was originally called In Thy Image, and it has a lot of elements that were very reminiscent of uh, previous Star Trek episodes. It has this sort of you know, a machine intelligence trying to find its creator, kind of like the the Changeling episode Nomad that was that was shown on the original series, and kind of like the Ultimate Computer and, and several other tales throughout the original series that were very similar to this one. Well, since they had this script and this idea already set, they only had to change some. You know, they they had to write a new script pretty much, but the basic essence of it came from a script that was originally written for this Phase 2 Star Trek series. You know, they, they got a little into a time crunch and had to create something pretty quickly for the motion picture, so they, they decided to use one of the scripts that was originally planned for this Phase 2 series. So there, just give you some background on the situation. Well, the movie was first released in December of 1979 and did extremely, really extremely well at the box office. It, uh, it made a lot of money. Of course, Star Trek had been off the air for 10 years at that time, and all the geeky fans like myself and a lot of other people went in droves to see this movie. I think I saw it when it was in the theater maybe, oh, at least a half a dozen times when it was in the theater. And, I, you know, I was really, I was very impressed with it. Yeah, granted it was a little slow in parts. It was kind of overboard on the special effects. But I, I, it was just so great to see Kirk Spock, McCoy, and the whole cast and crew back on board the Enterprise on the big screen, I was I was just really happy and excited by that, and it was it was just great. After ten years and only watching reruns, to see a new piece of Star Trek on the screen was an amazing experience. I can still remember uh, being in a packed theater that opening night. Uh, I didn't even end up getting one of the better seats. I usually kind of like to sit in the middle in the theater, and I kind of end up having to be a little closer to the screen than I usually like. And when the, when those Klingon ships came across the screen when it started, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is just." <laughs> I can still remember that that scene very vividly with the music playing, which leads me into the first clip I'm going to play. I, I gathered up this morning a lot of clips from the from the motion picture, probably about 15 more than I normally play, but I think they're important, and I want to go through them with you. So the first one I'm going to play is just some of the music, and I have to say that the Star Trek The Motion Picture probably had some of the best uh, musical score, I think, for any of the Star Trek movies. A lot of this music was used in, in later on in Star Trek The Next Generation. So we're going to play just a little bit of the Klingon music theme that was used in the opening sequence with the Klingon, the three Klingon ships that were approaching the V'ger Cloud. So listen to this music, and then we'll come back. 
Yeah, isn't that great music? I think it really evokes the feeling of the whole Klingon culture and their society. It, it's just really perfect. It's sort of tribal kind of sounding and and, and very kind of warlike. It, it, it's just great. The, the whole Star Trek The Motion Picture soundtrack, which they they reissued uh, uh, several years ago in a, in a sort of anniversary collection, I think it was like the 20th anniversary of the movie, which would have meant it come came out around 1999. Then was uh, you know they they released I think almost every bit of music from the movie on that set. It's a two CD set, I believe, and it's it's really a great soundtrack, one of the best, like I said, of all the Star Trek movies. I think. I mean, they had some great music in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and and other movies, of course, but. But this movie, I think the music just really fits Star Trek. I think it really fits the the grand scale that, that Star Trek always tried to be. And I, the, the various scenes that are in this film, I think the, the music really fits them well. Uh, one thing I also wanted to mention that I f- they forgot earlier in just kind of introducing the movie was Star Trek The Motion Picture, believe it or not, was rated G for general audiences. Now keep in mind this was back in 1979. They basically had G... P, G, R, and X. I mean, those were the ratings. So there weren't, you know, when when you got the PG, I think there was a little bit more that was necessary at that point to go to PG than maybe perhaps nowadays. Although in in general, I, you know, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, there's there's yeah, there's a couple of words in it. I, I was actually surprised when I was gathering up the clips. There are a couple of, I guess, well, let's call them sort of soft curse words, the typical ones that you can get away with on television and things like that in there but um nothing great and of course the the violence and things like that is is not there's nothing like that really there and so forth so anyway it was rated g i just wanted to point that out that's a little uh surprising i think to a lot of people because most people associate g-rated movies with only you know some disney cartoons just about but there are uh, quite a few movies in the past you know 20 30 years ago that were rated g that uh, i'm not sure if they'd be rated g these days so, and the last thing on the, on the movie in general, I always like the tagline that they threw at the end of the movie with, the human adventure is just beginning. I thought that was, it's a nice little tagline, plus it kind of gave you the idea, hey, this isn't just the only Star Trek movie we're ever going to do. We're going to do more, and it was sort of a, a, a kind of a teaser for, yeah, we'll be back, we'll be back with more adventures. So, and let's see, what what's next? The, the next clip, it was difficult again, of course, to pull out uh, just a few clips. So like I said, I got a lot of audio here to play for you guys today. This next one, a lot of these early clips, early audio clips I'm going to play are what they did in the first part of the movie was was kind of, you know, it was like bring the band back together again. Get the cast, get everyone, get the crew back together on the on the for the Enterprise and, and bring them all back. So you have a lot of different scenes where each one is sort of coming back into the into the picture, so to speak. And this uh, next one here is is with uh, Scotty and Captain Kirk, who's now Admiral Kirk. This is in uh, in orbit above Earth, where Kirk is being taken over to view the Enterprise for the first time. So let's uh, let's play this clip for you now. The crew haven't had near enough transition time with all our new equipment, and the engines are not even tested at warp power. And an untried captain. Two and a half years as chief of Starfleet operations may have made me a little stale, but I wouldn't exactly consider myself untried. They gave her back to me, Scotty. Gave her back, sir? I doubt it was that easy with Nagura. 
you late. <laughs> well, any man who could manage such a feat, I would not dare disappoint. She'll launch on time, sir. And she'll be ready. Yeah, I love that. I love that part in that uh, clip where where Kirk imitates Scotty's uh, Scotty's brogue uh, Scottish accent, and he says, "You know, gave her back, sir." And I doubt it was that easy with Nagura. Scotty says that, and, and then and then Kirk says, "You're right." You know, it's 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 really a nice little scene there between the two of them, and they're in the little pod that's moving its way over to Enterprise, and and then that brings you to the scene where you know you've got the beautiful scene with the enterprise in dry dock where you see the the changes they've made to the ship you know it's been in this refit situation for a couple of years now uh and it's just a lovely scene has the great music going and yeah it's probably a little longer than it needed to be but for fans like us that hadn't seen you know the enterprise ever on the big screen and certainly not this new redesign uh, to to have that sort of lovingly camera slow camera moving around the dry dock and showing the ship in orbit there was was another very uh, kind of emotional scene almost because the Enterprise itself is, is as much a character in, in Star Trek as as any of the crew has ever been. I mean, there's the people that enjoy Star Trek that enjoy watching the show. Uh, you know, they feel a real attachment to the ship. You know, it's almost like a, a a person you know it's always called she a lot of times things like that you know the enterprise is what protects the crew what gets them in and out of danger okay uh all those kind of things so it's it it's pretty uh, uh you know it's it's our favorite ship let's just say that so anyway let's uh let's move on to the next uh next clip here the the situation uh, aboard the enterprise at this time you know kirk has been they finished their five-year mission. The background there is the Enterprise with Kirk in command was the first starship uh, in Starfleet history to return safe and secure with, you know, pretty well intact after its five-year mission. That's the background story. Well, Kirk was then quickly promoted up to Admiral and, and took a job at Starfleet. Basically, he's not uh, in the center seat anymore. He's not a captain on a starship He's got kind of a desk job, and and you can tell a little bit in the early part of the movie that this is not a, a situation that he likes. Of course, this big danger thing happens, and, and it's coming towards Earth, and, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and Kirk, of course, being the guy that he is and the, and, and the captain that he always, you know, is meant to be, says, well, I'm getting the Enterprise back, and I'm going to be the one to go out there with the Enterprise and save the day. And it isn't so much ego as it is he just... That's just sort of he feels like it's his. That's what his duty is to is to do. Well, this next clip that I'm going to play, they've they've got a new captain uh, aboard the Enterprise right now while it's being refit. Uh, Will Decker, who is uh, supposed to be Commodore Decker's son. You know, remember Commodore Decker from uh, the episode uh, the of the original series, the Doomsday Machine. The idea is that Decker here, uh, Will Decker on the Enterprise, who's been made captain. Uh, during the refit is uh, that, you know, Com- Commodore Decker's son from the Doomsday Machine. So, you know, Kirk kind of knows him. He knows his family and so on. And there's a scene here where Kirk kind of takes over and goes to explain it to Decker. And that's what I'm going to play for you uh, right now. I'm taking over the center seat, Will. You're what? I'm replacing you as captain of the Enterprise. You'll stay on as executive officer. Temporary grade reduction to commander. 
You personally are assuming command? Yeah. May I ask why? My experience. Five years out there dealing with unknowns like this. My familiarity with the Enterprise, it's cruel. Admiral, this is an almost totally new Enterprise. You don't know her a tenth as well as I do. That's why you're staying aboard. I'm sorry, Will. No, Admiral. I don't think you're sorry. Not one damn bit. I remember when you recommended me for this command. You told me how envious you were and how much you hoped you'd find a way to get a Starship Command again. Well, sir, it looks like you found a way. Yeah, that's uh, Stephen Collins of Seventh Heaven fame. Stephen Collins playing uh, Captain Decker, well, now uh, just, com- uh, sorry, Commander Decker, when they reduce him in rank. But that's, yeah, Stephen Collins playing Decker. I think he really does a good job in this movie, considering he was one of the uh, uh, couple of characters, one of the only you know non Star Trek people coming back in and coming into a movie like this, not having that background working on the series like most of the rest of the cast. I think he does a really good job uh, fitting you know into this spot of sort of you know he sort of ends up being sort of a little bit of an antagonist for Kirk. He knows the new Enterprise better than Kirk. He's got the experience with that. Uh, new technology but of course Kirk, of course blah, 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 excuse me uh, of course Kirk has the you know he has the savvy he has the space uh, savvy that he's been out there he's he's been doing things in and knows how to deal with situations you know like this and it isn't just I think it ends, it ends up showing is is being the captain of the enterprise and being captain of starship isn't all about you know knowing what button to push to do what he's got people around him that can do that Kirk Kirk is the decision maker. Kirk is the one, you know, calling the shots. And eventually, though, that little bit, uh, he starts out a little uh, uneasy being back aboard the Enterprise. Kirk does, but by the end of the movie, of course, he's he's got everything back in place, and he's he basically is is doing the job. So, um, let's go on. The other main uh, new character that they introduced in the motion picture was a character, an alien character that was supposed to be. Uh, this alien was supposed to be in this Star Trek TV series, the one that I was talking about earlier that they were going to do when, um, you know, in the mid-70s that they had started working on with scripts and sets. This character uh, was called Ilea. She's uh, uh, from uh, a planet called Delta, and she's a Deltan. And and the the storyline with the Deltans are they're this, like, sort of, um, you know, advanced sexual race, I guess is the way you explain it. In other words... You know, they have certain eh, sexual uh, techniques and different things that, that humans couldn't really basically handle, is, is the idea. <laughs> so when she comes aboard, she she makes this, there's this little throwaway line in the movie, and you don't really understand it unless you know the background, read the book, and, and, and do a little of, uh, hunting around. Uh, it, you don't really know what this is all about, but she has this line in the movie that says, you know, her oath of celibacy is on record, which you're like, well, what the heck is up with that? And there's a couple other little scenes in the movie uh, that explain this a little bit further, but nothing really in, in depth. So that's the point, is that they're they're basically, when they join Starfleet, the Deltons can't sort of basically fraternize with other humans aboard the uh, the ship that they're on. That's It's kind of forbidden. They're not allowed to because, uh, I don't know, what did it do, drive the guys crazy or something? I don't know. Anyway, uh, 
the the character of Ilea was played by this uh, beautiful uh, Indian uh, actress called her name is Persis Kambada, and she she did actually shave her head for the movie. Uh, she had very long dark hair. She was a former Miss India. Unfortunately, she uh, she passed away a few years ago from uh, from she had a heart problem that had. She had a bypass operation at one point in time, but she had a, I guess she had just sort of a congenital heart problem, but she did pass away a few years ago at a very young age. I don't think she was even 50 years old yet, so that's uh, that's kind of a, a sad situation. And I think, again, this is really, I think, her first acting job, and she does a really good job. She has to play a lot of, uh, you know, different sort of emotions, non-emotions in this movie when she comes back as sort of the Ilea robot uh probe that that is sent to the enterprise to interact with the crew uh, she does a, a very good job i think especially being so young and you know inexperienced in in acting in general and the the storyline going on in aboard the the enterprise is that uh, decker and ilea know each other they uh, decker was uh, on ilea's home world for for a while so they got kind of chummy and they, they sort of knew each other did i just say the word chummy who says chummy <laughs> I don't, uh, anyway, they know each other. So I'm going to play a, uh, this is a clip where I think when Ilea first uh, comes aboard the Enterprise. So listen to this. Lieutenant Ilea, reporting for duty, sir. Welcome aboard, Lieutenant. Hello, Ilea. Decker. I was stationed on the Lieutenant's home planet some years ago. Commander Decker? Yes, our exec and science officer. Captain Kirk has the utmost confidence in me. And then you too, Lieutenant. My oath of celibacy is on record, Captain. May I assume my duties? By all means. Captain, Starfleet reports our last six crew members are ready to beam up, but uh, one of them is refusing to step into the transporter. Oh? I'll see to it that he beams up. Transporter room. Yeah, well, one, th- one thing that I... Uh... I don't know if I've ever even noticed this before. When I was when I was collecting up these audio clips from the DVD this morning, one thing that I was noticing was that everyone once once Kirk kind of takes back over the the center seat on the Enterprise, everyone starts calling him Captain, and I, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with that. There's there's a couple of possibilities. He wasn't really reduced in rank. I mean, in the next few Star Trek movies, he was still always called Admiral. Until, of course, what happens to him at the end of Star Trek IV when he is reduced in rank from Admiral back to Captain. But in this movie, he's he's definitely an Admiral in, at Starfleet to begin with. But then once he's in, in command of the Enterprise, they, everyone starts calling him Captain again. And I think it's more of just the, he's the Captain of the ship. His rank is Admiral, but they're calling him Captain because he's the captain not not that that's just his rank uh, i think it's just a little bit of a, a glitch if you ask me i mean i, I don't i'm not a military guy uh, i know a little bit you know from from a few guys i knew in the navy and uh, you know from movies and tv and books and things like that i'm not an expert but you know maybe somebody can shoot me an email at treksf at gmail.com and explain to me you know if you've got a a very high-ranking guy on a you know a naval vessel like an admiral but he's in command of the ship. Would you call him Admiral or would you call him Captain? Uh, I'm just kind of curious. So, uh, what else are we going to go over here? Uh, the the next scene, yes, the next scene is with Doctor McCoy. That is the guy they're referring to there. That's not wanting to step into the transporter. 
And this scene here is a great scene with uh, Kirk and McCoy in the transporter room. It was great to see DeForest Kelly come back uh, into into the movie and into Star Trek. Uh, he just adds so much spark to the show, and, and he's so much fun in this scene. I, it's just, just a great scene. So listen to this. Well, for a man who swore he'd never return to Starfleet. Just a moment, Captain, sir. I'll explain what happened. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little-known, seldom-used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. They didn't. This was your idea. This was your idea, wasn't it? Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. Permission to come aboard? Permission granted, sir. Well, Jim, I hear Chapel's an MD now. Well, I'm going to need a top nurse. Not a doctor who'll argue every little diagnosis with me. And they probably redesigned the whole sick bay, too. I know engineers, they love to change things. Well, one thing I forgot to say at the beginning that I wanted to mention is it's not a big factor, but I am using the two-disc set of the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture. That DVD set is what I'm really reviewing, I guess, here and commenting on today. For those that don't know, Star Trek uh, The Motion Picture was was sort of re-edited with some new enhanced effects and sound by Robert Wise, who directed the movie. This happened uh, a few years ago, I think, yeah, around 2000, 2001 is when it was released. 2001, yeah. And basically, they, they tightened up the movie, they, they made it a little more streamlined, he took a few things out, put a few new things in, and it, it's really, a, I think, a better cut of the movie. There are uh, there are extras, a lot of extras on this uh, two D, two DVD set. The second disc has a whole ton of extra stuff, commentaries, interviews, a lot of uh, deleted scenes. The movie, when it was shown on TV in 1983, had a lot of scenes in it that they they took out of both the original. Uh, when the original theatrical release was out, and also this director's edition, they they took some scenes out completely and never put them back in. So the this director's edition, don't think of it as like the super long extended edition like they did with like the Lord of the Rings movies. This is just a, a tighter version of the movie, and I think they did a really nice job with it. The effects are a little enhanced. There are some scenes, especially with Viger near the end, that are new. So it's it's a great DVD set to have. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think the it's the only DVD set of this, their motion picture out. I think they when they did the DVD release of the, the Star Trek movie, the first one, they only released the director's cut. So that's all you can get, at least on DVD. So let's go on. The next uh, scene. This is a scene right after, you know, the Enterprise has just been in dry dock. The engines aren't working right, so they first have to uh, try them out, and they go into this engine imbalance situation and Decker ends up saving the ship because he knows what to do better than Kirk does and then there's a scene where Kirk takes him down to his office and they, they kind of have it out a little bit so I'll play that uh, clip for you now 
You saved the ship. I'm aware of that, sir. Stop competing with me, Decker. Permission to speak freely, sir? Granted. Sir, you haven't logged a single star hour in two and a half years. That plus your unfamiliarity with the ship's redesign, in my opinion, sir, seriously jeopardizes this mission. I trust you will nurse made me through these difficulties, mister? Yes, sir, I'll do that. Then I won't keep you from your duties any longer, Commander. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, Decker knows the, the new refit Enterprise better than, than Kirk. You would you would kind of have thought, though, even when Kirk was, was working at Starfleet, that he would have been following the, the refit of the Enterprise uh, a little more closely, and, and something as large as, as running the phasers, you know, having their power coming through the warp engines and whatever, however they do that, you know, plug them in there instead of into the impulse engine or whatever, uh, that Kirk would know something like that. But it, it's a good plot situation. I mean, it's basically showing that Kirk isn't isn't still really the, the the expert on the Enterprise at this point in time. So, you know, it's a little side note, you know, side thing going on on, the, on this movie. Not super important, but um, we'll move on. The next scene, this is, uh, I think, the last of the, hey, let's get the gang back together, let's get the band back together scenes. This is the scene with um, when Spock first reappears and comes back onto the Enterprise. Now, keep in mind, Leonard Nimoy didn't want to have anything to do with the the series they were going to redo. Remember, I was talking about the Phase 2 series they were going to do. He really didn't want to be a part of that. And if I'm remembering correctly at this point in time, I think he was kind of one of the last holdouts for the movie, you know. That so, if you wonder, hey, he doesn't really show up in the movie until a good chunk of it's gone by. Although there's that little scene on Vulcan at the beginning when they launch, they kind of take off. He's not aboard, so you can almost really, except for some, you know, there's some critical scenes near the end of the movie, but you could see how he was sort of tacked into the movie a little bit, perhaps. Uh, I think that's because for a while they weren't sure if he was going to be in it or not. But the scene where he comes back aboard the Enterprise, you know, he's been uh, trying to do this culinary discipline on Vulcan, which is basically to kind of finally purge him of all of the emotions that are, you know, in him, uh, completely strip all that away and become a pure, you know, logical Vulcan, which, you know, even in the original series, he wasn't always that way, which has always made Spock, you know, a very interesting character and also I think gives him the edge that he has because he understands emotions better than other Vulcans and that helps him a lot, which is a key thing towards the end of this movie also. But the first scene when he comes aboard of the, the Enterprise, gets up to the bridge of the Enterprise, he's very like, you know, everyone's like, oh gosh, it's Spock, Spock's back, Spock, oh my gosh, let's have a hug. Uh and he's like, hey, you know, I am Vulcan, stay away from me, you know, type thing. He's he's more logical, more Vulcan than he has ever been before, and that kind of comes through in this scene. So listen to this. I've been monitoring your communications with Starfleet Command, Captain. I'm aware of your engine design difficulties. I offer my services as science officer. With all due respect, Commander... If our exec has no objections? Of course not. I'm well aware of Mr. Spock's qualification. Mr. Chekhov, log Mr. Spock's Starfleet commission reactivated. List him as science officer. Both effective immediately. Mr. Spock. Well, so help me, I'm actually pleased to see you. 
It's how we all feel, Mr. Spark. Captain, with your permission, I will now discuss these fuel equations with the engineer. Mr. Spark, welcome aboard. Yeah, so uh, Spock is just not uh, not the old Spock that they remember. He's he's just you know he turns his back on Kirk when Kirk says welcome aboard. He doesn't even excuse me. He doesn't even really answer or anything like that. Uh, and you know heads off to engineering. I, I love Spock's just sort of grand entrance. They even play a little harp almost when he when he walks off uh, the shuttle that he comes in uh, aboard the Enterprise. He's got that little cloak, that black cloak on with the little Vulcan symbols on. I didn't mention it at the beginning, you know, when they, they that scene on Vulcan with with Kirk, or sorry, Kirk, duh, with Spock on Vulcan when he's trying to, you know, do the culinar and he's hearing this this sort of uh, voice from space that's stopping him from continuing and, and finishing this this discipline he's going through. It is a really neat scene. They they show Vulcan in a way that we haven't seen before. It's very volcanic, and Spock is there with the long hippie hair. the the Vulcan uh, The little Vulcan crew cut, uh, you know, didn't uh, didn't stick when he was on Vulcan and doing the culinar, I guess. But at some point in time, he got a little haircut on the way uh, back to the Enterprise. I think it would have been kind of neat if he actually he showed up aboard aboard the Enterprise with, with long hair, and then, you know, some point in time between scenes, he got a haircut on the Enterprise, but, you know, it's whatever. And Leonard Nimoy, always just great. Uh, you know, he's he's Spock. I mean, it's Leonard Nimoy is Spock, and Spock is Leonard Nimoy. It's just it's just a perfect match there. The next scene is a scene in a, in a lounge where Kirk Spock and Dr. McCoy are discussing both what Spock's been up to and V'ger. Well, they don't know it's V'ger, but this this alien entity that's coming, uh, this big, massive entity that's coming towards Earth. So here's that clip for you now. At last report, you were on Vulcan. Apparently to stay. Yes, you were undergoing the culinary discipline. Sit down. If you are referring to the culinar, Doctor, you are correct. Well, however it's pronounced, Mr. Spock... It's the Vulcan ritual that's supposed to purge all remaining emotions. The culinar is also a discipline you broke to join us. Will you please sit down? On Vulcan, I began sensing a consciousness from a source more powerful than I have ever encountered. Thought patterns of exactingly perfect order. I believe they emanate from the intruder. I believe it may hold my answers. Well, isn't it lucky for you that we just happen to be heading your way? Bones. We need him. I need him. Then my presence is to our mutual advantage. Yeah, there, there's just a little bit of a hint there that, that, that Spock isn't so much aboard to help them out as he is maybe just to help himself out. But, you know, Kirk trusts him completely, and trusts him with his life, so there's, they don't really explore that real thoroughly. It's, it's, it's not really even worth considering. Spock would never do anything to, uh, to hurt them or the Enterprise or Starfleet, so 
uh, the next uh, next clip. Let's move along. I got about five or six left. Sorry, this this podcast is definitely going to go a little longer than normal. I, I seem to be doing that lately. Maybe I just uh, got more to talk about. Uh, the next clip, though, this is with uh, Ilea and Viger. I think this is, I, th- I believe this is the clip with when uh, Ilea has been taken by the probe uh, by Viger. We can just call it that. We know what it is. And uh, then she comes back as this probe. Uh, she still looks like Ilea, but she's a, a probe to interact with the crew to find out about, you know, where her creator is or where Viger's creator is, I should say. So listen to uh, this clip with Ilea. Who is Vijay? Vijay is that which programmed me. Is Vijay the name of the captain of the alien vessel? Jim, this is a mechanism. A probe, Captain. No doubt a sensor-transceiver combination, recording everything we say and do. Where is Lieutenant Ilea? That unit no longer functions. I've been given its form to more readily communicate with the carbon-based units infesting Enterprise. Carbon-based units? Humans, Ensign Perez. Us. Why does V'ger travel to the third planet of the solar system directly ahead? To find the creator. Find the creator? Who's... What does Vija want with the Creator? To join with him. To join with the Creator. How? Vija and the Creator will become one. And who is the Creator? The Creator is that which created Vija. Who is Vija? Vija is that which seeks the Creator. So then you have the you know the Decker takes uh, Ilea or or the this probe from Vija in hand and and shows her the Enterprise. And, and shows her that this this ship is is a piece of technology, but these carbon-based units, good old smart Ensign Perez there, who doesn't know when somebody's talking about carbon-based units that they're talking about the humans aboard the Enterprise. You know, they Viger views those as sort of an infection. That that's you know the it's just the machines, the the pure machinery, the Enterprise that's that's really the entity, and the and the carbon-based units are things to be knocked out. So when it gets to Earth, it has the same idea. Well, Kirk, being being the normal Kirk way, he kind of cons his way into having uh, the Ilea probe take them to right to the heart of the the, the alien device to really where V'ger is, and that's when they make the discovery of what V'ger uh, is all about. So I'll play uh, the clip for you now. This is after after they reach that Kirk Spock. Um, Dr. McCoy, uh, Decker, and the Ilea probe go to meet uh, V'ger. V'ger. V-O-Y-A-G-E-R. Voyager. National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Jim, this was launched more than 300 years ago. Voyager series. Designed to collect data and transmit it back to Earth. 
Yeah, so that's the, you know that's this idea, this goal of of Vidra, of Voyager, is to collect data, just continuing to collect data, and then get it back to Earth, and that's it's what it's been doing. And the the next clip I'll play will explain that also. And well, you know, most of, I I think everyone listening to the show, this podcast, has seen this movie at least once, so none of this is a surprise. But it's it's good information, and I, I think it's an interesting way that they, you know get the information to us so we'll play that now voyager 6 disappeared into what they used to call a black hole it must have emerged on the far side of the galaxy and fell into the machine planet's gravitational field the machine inhabitants found it to be one of their own kind primitive yet kindred they discovered its simple 20th century programming collect all data possible Learn all that is learnable. Return that information to its creator. Precisely, Mr. Decker. The machines interpreted it literally. They built this entire vessel so that Voyager could actually fulfill its programming. And on its journey back, it amassed so much knowledge, it achieved consciousness itself. It became a living thing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the most interesting part about the movie, or the the, the, the I guess the the main point is that you know if if a machine can can amass enough knowledge, enough information, and make enough connections that it would it be able to attain some form of consciousness? Would it be able to decide between right and wrong? Would it be able to make you know ethical and moral choices and decisions just based on tons and tons of of information and you know there there's there's definitely a case that could be made to say yeah that's um you know a human being just uh, after they're born just slowly amasses uh, amasses uh, <laughs> amasses uh, information over time and that that creates their their abilities to make decisions to to decide between you know do I eat the chicken or the beef? Do I, do I turn left? Do I turn right? Well, you know, those lots of different things like that. There's a lot more to it, of course, and I don't want to get into a whole philosophical discussion on uh, what it is to be alive and, and, you know, be able to do those kinds of things. But I, I don't really see, it, you know, anything to stop anything in the future from, you know, possibly an android or a robot being being fed so much information that, that it could make basic decisions and choices. You know everything that you decide on. You're you're doing it through, you know, information that you have. But there's the, there's that emotional element that I think is is important, and that's the big point or the other factor here in this in this movie that they're trying to get across is that V'ger is doesn't have the emotional spark. You know, you can have a lot of informa- information, but you know what drives people forward or drives human beings to to continue and to do things is not just uh, if I if I go to work I will get paid money. Well, there's there's more to it than that. If you go to work, you will you know you, you there's there's feelings that are associated with that. You you feel sort of proud of what you do, maybe or maybe not so proud or whatever the reason. You know there, there's more in what you do and how you decide things based on just you know a, a one plus one equals two. It's not as simple as that, and that's really what Vidra is is after here. 
I hope I haven't gone too off the deep end with that discussion or in too depth, but I think it's important stuff. And, you know, that's what Spock gains from this whole experience. He he learns that, that pure logic isn't enough. He learns that just knowing one and one is two, it's what you do with that knowledge uh, via emotions, via other things, influences from people you know, that that's important also. So let's, um, I got two, two clips left. Then we're going to kind of wrap this up. I got a contest to, to finish up too. Uh, the next clip, let's not get off too far on a tangent. This one is, of course, the, the you got to play a little bit of the scene where Decker joins with V'ger. Uh He doesn't really know what's going to happen at this point, but he decides he's the one to key in the sequence that's going to tell V'ger to transmit its information. And that, of course, he he and Ilea or the Ilea probe are sort of turned into this sort of pure energy form. And the whole thing kind of goes, woof, disappears, and the Enterprise is just left, and everything else is gone. And, and the idea is maybe they ascended into sort of a higher consciousness state, a higher state of being, uh, something like that. But I'll play that clip for you right now. Decker, I'm going to key the final sequence through the ground test computer. Decker, you don't know what that'll do to you. Yes, I do, Doctor. Decker, don't. Jim, I want this. As much as you wanted the Enterprise, I want this. Yeah, so so Decker splices the wires together that V'ger had shorted out and types in the sequence and, and then joins with V'ger, joins with the the creator, joins with V'ger. So that's uh, the motion picture. I got one last clip to play towards the end of it, and then we're going to uh, wrap up uh, the discussion of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So let's play that clip, and then I'll probably talk over the ending uh, of it a little bit over the music that they play. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye. We can have you back on Vulcan in four days, Mr. Spock. Unnecessary, Mr. Scott. My task on Vulcan is completed. Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. Out there. That away. So there you have, uh, you know, Star Trek The Motion Picture, my take on it. Uh, I think it's a really good movie. I think it really gets, I think it gets a little, yeah, a little abused in the Star Trek circles and in other circles as being not very good. There's there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. You could brought all the cast back together again for the first time on the main screen. The visual effects, the music... The storyline is probably the weakest point, and, and that's, you know, in, a, in in movies, the story is very important. I don't deny that. But I think there's there's so many things in this film that make it uh, interesting and good that it's still a, a worthy uh, first, uh, first effort. You know, th- this was the first time they got the cast back together on the main screen. So there was, 
you know, there's a little stiffness in their performances, perhaps, and they've been out of it for for ten years, out of doing Star Trek. And the, again, the story I think also is is a factor in how their performances come through. They didn't really utilize a lot of the, the sort of secondary actors and and crew members in this movie as maybe as as well as they did in like Star Trek Four, for example, where they really used the cast well. The and and some of the other films. So that's a little bit of a fault, but I, I still think that this is a, is a great movie, and it just brings back so many good memories for me, at least, of of being there that opening night to see it the first time on the big screen. That it it's it still holds a pretty pretty high uh, place in my heart as far as Star Trek films go. It you know you keep, you keep in mind that without Star Trek the motion picture, there would be no other Star Trek movies. I think I've maybe mentioned this before. You would have never had another Star Trek movie. You would have never had probably another Star Trek series. So we would just still be left with, you know, the original series, the animated series, and the motion picture. So this um, this really was a stepping stone to all those other great things that came later on. And I think they did uh, did a good job with it. it. It's definitely a better, a cleaner movie and a better movie on the director's edition. So check that out sometime. I'm going to take a very short break here, and I'm going to come back and and announce our left-handed contest winner, and then we'll wrap up the show. You're listening to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast, starring my friend, Rico. All right, I'm not going to be. Uh, I'm not going to cover any collectibles this week. I've kind of run uh, running long, and we got to talk about this contest. Uh, last week, I asked for uh, people to send in actors that are left-handed that have been in Star Trek, especially the the main cast members. I was looking for uh, as many as somebody could name, and the one that created or I got the list of the the greatest number of actors would win the, uh, a DVD copy of Star Trek Insurrection. It looks like I've got uh, quite a few people that have submitted, and you know, of course, there's a lot of overlap uh, on these. But I think the winner is going to be a guy named Richard Trey. Uh, Richard Trey, uh, who sent in a list of actually 20 people. Let me just run down real quick his list. Uh, he has uh, James Cromwell, who played Zephram Cochran, Michael Dorn, Worf, Whoopi Goldberg, Guinan, Joe Piscopo, who was on the holodeck in TNG, Brent Spiner, Data, Will Wheaton, Wesley Crusher. Jason Alexander, uh, who guest starred on a couple episodes, I think, one in Voyager. Bernie Casey, Walter Koenig, Chekhov, that's a big one. He's he's left-handed, original series. Tim Russ, Tuvok from Voyager, left-handed. Kurtwood Smith, Professor Moriarty, uh, he didn't have the actor listed for that. Uh, James Dewan, Scotty. Mark Twain, uh, the, the actor who played him, I guess is who he means there. Uh, Terry Garr, Roberta Lincoln from the episode in the original series Assignment Earth. Uh, Albert Einstein from TOS, uh, or not TOS, TNG, Descent. Christian Slater, who guest starred on one of the Star Trek movies, Undiscovered Country. Christopher Lloyd, Frank Langella. Those are all left-handed people. They've all been on Star Trek, and you win the prize. Uh, From all the other lists that I got, there were a lot of, like I said, most of those names, a few of those names, other people mentioned but there was one that a lot of people missed here here's a here's a little bit of a hint well i'm just going to tell you who it is but she was on deep space nine and she was part of the main cast only part of the main cast though in the last season 
And the actress I'm looking for there is Nicole DeBoer. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She played Dax, if you remember, in the last season of Deep Space Nine. Terry Farrell wasn't aboard anymore, and they brought in a new uh, actress who I think she's on that movie or that movie that uh, series, The Dead Zone, now. But Nicole is also uh, left-handed, so I was uh, I was kind of surprised people missed that one because I thought uh, you know her being on a whole season of Deep Space Nine that that would pop up in uh, some searches that I'm sure people Googled this a lot. So anyway, Richard, uh, you win the prize of the DVD. Just shoot me an email with your information on where to mail it, and I will get that out to you. Thanks for everyone who uh, participated in the contest. One thing I want to mention, I did win recently on eBay some pretty inexpensive Star Trek action figures that are going to be turning up quite often uh, on future uh, uh, Treks and Sci-Fi podcasts for contests. So probably in the next week or so, I'm I'm probably going to start doing almost a contest, some kind of a contest every uh, podcast for the weekend shows at least. So stay tuned for that. Oh, and if you want to know a uh, another uh, famous left-handed pe- person, excuse me, in the sci-fi world, uh, the actor Mark Hamill, not a Star Trek guy, but in, in Star Wars, a pretty big part of Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill is left-handed, so I thought I'd throw that one in there too. That's going to do it. I am going to do a Wednesday show this week, so we'll go over some more emails and other uh, information. I'm going to probably talk about a couple of collectibles on the Wednesday show this week instead of today because I am running definitely long but I think the going over the Star Trek The Motion Picture in, in length and in depth a bit was, was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the movie, and everyone should go out and check it out again. So uh, next uh, Wednesday, uh, that'll be show 71. Next weekend, we'll do show 72. And I am going to look for the website and announcement. Next weekend show, show 72, is going to be a kind of a one-year anniversary show for Treks and Sci-Fi. haven't quite decided what I'm going to do. It may just be a Skype call-in show talking to people and, and talking about sci-fi and, and maybe a little bit about the podcast. Uh, but I look on the main website. I'm going to announce that in a couple of days, what we're going to do uh, special for next weekend's show for Labor Day weekend, which will be the one-year, like I said, anniversary of this podcast. Can't believe it's been a whole year I've been doing it. Uh, but I think it's been going good, and everyone seems to be liking it. So at least those that are listening and those that aren't listening, well, they don't even know what they're missing. So until next week, everyone, thanks for listening to this week's edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. And this is Rico. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to edit this up and post it online. So thanks, everyone, for listening again. Talk to you on Wednesday. Bye-bye. This has been a Rick Dosti production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.